so welcome, Kim. Uh, thank you for joining me. Uh, it's great to have somebody for mentor and it's great to have you. Um, we've known each other for a little while and I, I think you're terrific. I was looking forward to having a chat with you. Um, just so everybody knows, Kim, uh, you are the uh, Canadian director for mentor, uh, mentor aesthetics, right? Yes, uh, what's, exactly. what's your what, what is your official position? So my official role, I look after the sales and marketing for the whole Canadian division for the mentor portfolio, but I do work closely with my global partners. So our head office for mentor would be situated in Irvine, California. And what I do from the Canadian point of view, I run the, the mentor show for, for sales and, and both marketing and sales. Yeah. How did, how did you get involved with mentor, Kim? Well, try not to bore you, Dr. Yazdani, uh, with, all, with all the details. But, you know, it was very interesting because I came to J&J about 18 years ago, came in through sales, and I was looking after women's health. So it was strictly urology and gynecology. I loved the specialist world. It, it was just a great fit that, uh, that I had a national role there as well. So you really got a feel for what was happening across the country. Surgeons always love knowing, you know, what are they doing in British Columbia? What are they doing in Alberta? So throughout J&J, it's a great place where you can move through different roles. I took on a number of different positions where they became a little bit more provincial based. And then when the mentor portfolio came open, they knew I had a love for specialists and working in that one area. Uh, so they thought I might be a great candidate for the role. Um, so eight years ago, I applied to, to take over the mentor portfolio. And part of my success was because of that whole area of of the specialty, working with a close group of reps in one area. And breast recon and aesthetics was was a perfect fit for me. Yeah. So so for people who don't know, Mentor uh, is one of the two major companies that uh, manufactures breast implants. Uh, and that's predominantly the business. It's a it's a breast implantation company or breast implant company. And, and Mentor was purchased by Johnson & Johnson. Um, when was that, Kim? That was in the early 2000s? Yeah, I was Well, I actually, we purchased them about 12 years ago. Oh, yes. oh okay. So, yeah. yeah, for some reason, yeah. I thought it was early 2000s. It's kind of me losing track of time. So, so was it 2010? It must have been 2010 or 2008, something like that? Yeah, exactly. And, and at that point, I wasn't involved with it at all. But we had we had acquired Mentor and we had acquired it uh, and brought it into our portfolio, into our world, which was definitely a bit of mayhem at the time. So it's, it's, so it's interesting because you were a part of Johnson & Johnson and then, then you kind of moved into Mentor, which was kind of an aesthetics company as opposed to some of the other executives that I've chatted with who are part of the aesthetics company. And then they get, then when they're purchased by the bigger company, then they move into a higher role. And I think that was, um, that was, that was, um, the case with the previous CEO of mentor. Was it not that she was a mentor kind of born and bred mentor and then moved into a J and J role. It, well, exactly. And you know, it's funny because when we acquired mentor and this is just from what I can recollect, um, we brought everybody with us. So the whole mentor division came with us through to J&J and stayed a lot of their same rules, but then tried to tried to adjust to the new world of medical devices and corporate and everything else. Because at one point it was just a very small, small but mighty operation. Um, and then when J&J took it over, it was 
really having to adjust their way of doing things just because now we had, you know, different protocols and processes that we had to follow or that they had to follow at the time. Yeah. And I, I, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I, I've, I really enjoy, as I was telling you the other the other time we were chatting, I, I really do enjoy chatting with uh, business executives because you guys bring such a different perspective uh, than medical types and medical people. <laughs> but but one of the one of the interesting topics that I've uh, really found fascinating chatting with executives has been culture and their business culture. And the idea that you have a company that, has a certain culture and they're successful. Mentor has been very successful with breast implants. And then they're purchased by a bigger company that's new to that uh, arena. And the, the, the worry is always, is the culture going to change? And uh, I remember actually, because I, I, I remember Mentor from pre-Johnson uh, Johnson purchasing them. And I, I had a lot of exposure with um, the various various kind of reps and people that were affiliated with that company. It was, it was always a great company, well-run and terrific um, kind of principled company. Uh, and then and then it was kind of a question of when there's a new company that comes in and they have their own new set of values, does that change and has that changed? Uh, do you think anything kind of changed? I know we're looking at 12 years ago, but but... Can you think about it? I'm sure. So Rick Sherman was was basically the GM for Mentor when they came over to J&J. And I don't know if you ever knew knew Rick Sherman. He was just a really lovely, lovely man and um, and really adjusted as as well as he could to the J&J culture. Um, And he he actually ran the show for a few years as we tried to figure out the best way to amalgamate the, the two companies together. And, uh, and I got to know him a little bit just because, as I said, he was a very likable, uh, genuine person. Uh, so I would think he really went into it proactively um, to give you an example of someone who said, OK, you know, I'm going to embrace this change. I'm going to look at it positively. I think a lot of, you know, some people who were no longer with Mentor had a harder time adjusting um, just just because you know the whole world of compliance had changed at that point and things that you can do when you're a smaller company and expenditures that you can make with some of your customers and clients, when you come into the J&J world, um, all that changes. So I think that was a little bit of a shift for everyone and, and you had to look at business in a different way. Not, not bad, not great, but I'm sure some of the reps, it was a different way of having to, to go about their daily um, activities. Moving into Jane Jay, um, I mean, we have a one, like, really, we have a wonderful uh, culture at Jane Jay. And I always set, tell them they're going to have to get rid of me because I won't leave. You know, I, I think it's just, you know, Jane Jay just stands for so many of the right things. They do the right thing, right? And whether I agree or disagree, sometimes I always know it's what's in the best interest of the patients, what's the healthcare practitioners. So I think once the mentor, employees shifted to learn a little bit more about our culture, I think it became easier to realize, wow, bigger company, you can do more, you can spend more on some of these other things that maybe when you're small, you just don't have access to. Right. And, and when you mean, just to clarify, when you refer to um, compliance issues, I'll just kind of briefly say to our listeners, because, because I know people talk about this at all. And, and somebody who's 
foreign to the industry may not understand, but but it really refers to how you interact with your clients, um, meaning like um, how you interact with hospitals or private clinics, um, how you do educational activities, how you organize your educational activities, um, the way that you organize all of those, and even things like funding of educational activities like resident research and resident kind of um, resident events. Um, there are strict rules about how those funding, how that funding can happen, and it's changed over the past number of years, right? Like, it, I mean, it, it was far more lax um, even over a decade ago. But I think when you refer to compliance, you mean that following those rules has become far more difficult and has affected how companies interact with what they consider as their clients or their kind of end users. I, I think it's a good way of looking. I think when you're a smaller company, and you know, you probably even see it in some of the smaller aesthetics that they can they can do things without having to go through this whole approval process a little quicker and easier than we can. Not that we don't eventually get there, but we have more of a stringent process that we follow just to make sure all the I's are dotted, all the T's are crossed, we're being fair, we're we're investing in the right areas. I think some of those things have been have been really excellent because I can always pass the red face test whenever I'm talking to any of the surgeons to say, you know, here's what we're doing. Here's why we're doing it. Um, and I think, you know, before that, you know, when I was a rep in the field, I could make, you know, 12, 15 years ago, I could make decisions on my own. Say, yeah, okay, let's just do that. Uh, not knowing what else was going on across the country. And I think with mentor before they came in as part of J and J, they could do a little bit more of that, right? They could, you know, some of the stories I hear are, are I, I always think sound extremely fun, but, you know, being able to go to baseball games and, and rent out the, uh, the, the, what do you call it, the box and stuff like that, that you could do a little bit more where, where now, you know, with, with the new structure and with J&J, you know, none of that, unless, you know, we don't do any of that anymore. We, we want to support education and, you know, use of our product. How do we best teach that preceptorships, all of that, which, which is excellent. Um, but it's a bit of a shift from how it used to be. Yeah, right. And and I, I guess the the people who would criticize would be, would, and it's not, this wasn't just a mentor issue. This was how the industry interacted with with um, their end users. And it, it, it led people to really think of it kind of like an old boys club, right? Where people would make decisions based on who they liked or really without without having to answer, maybe not not in a malicious way, but they just would make decisions that they didn't necessarily have to answer for. And, and now that process is far more regulated and regimented. And I know because I, I deal with you guys and if there's anything that has to be done on an educational basis, there's got to be a formal approval process and there has to be merit to the request. Exactly. And, and the nice thing even for you and, and your colleagues, you know now, OK, well, there's the process. You you know, it's fair, you know, that we're looking at all the different processes so that when I respond back to say, hey, you know what, we just can't do it. Here's why. Um, it's not there's there's not favoritism. There, there's none of that. It's it's strictly the process that we follow. So can I go back to this J&J question? Because when I had a conversation with your previous CEO, um, they they talked about this uh, cradle, um, the, the J&J cradle, which, which is, I don't even really know how you would describe it, but is it like a, like a um, Jerry Maguire type of um, document of purpose <laughs> that, that you revisit periodically? <laughs> 
know, I guess with the credo, it, 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 it's funny. It, it really is something that we, we, we live by. When you come in the front entrance of J&J, you'll see our credo hung on our wall. Um, and, and it really has, it goes back, you know, from when the, the two Johnson and Johnson brothers started out the company is, you know, our first and foremost priority is, is the patients and the healthcare providers. So when we make decisions, we, we go down that path. And now that's the Johnson and Johnson credo, but what happens is all the different franchises like mentor, for instance, we, we follow the credo, right? We follow how we treat employees and, how we treat our, our surgeons and how we treat our patients. So, I mean, it's the guiding light a bit, um, but it really is, um, it really has held true. And it really even hasn't changed with, with everything in the world changing. Our credo has just been a really nice baseline for who we are and what we represent. So is that something that internally um, y- you have to periodically revisit with your staff and um, you emphasize and, and how do you do that? Is that just through retreats or is it on a day-to-day basis? Every decision has some kind of relevance to that credo. So for, for both, for sure. So a lot of, I mean, you know, it's very rare we'd sit and say, well, what would the credo say? But we do, we do check on, we do credo surveys uh, around the world and we measure the results to say, you know, are we living by what we say um, by the different paragraphs that we break it down? And we get, you know, every single person that's employed by J&J will respond to it. And then at the end, what we do is we do a presentation to each country. How are our credo results? Where can we do better? And if we can do better, we set goals and objectives to say, you know, maybe we need to do more here on the innovation pillar. Or maybe we need to do more here. So, so we get really a group's perspective. So for us, it would be our voice of customer almost. Yeah. I, I just think it's really fascinating, you know, because I, in, in, there, there is a strong relationship between um, the surgeons and end users and physicians and companies. There, in, in any area of medicine, there is. But in, in, in plastic surgery and aesthetics, I think I would probably go out on a limb and say that it's that's a stronger relationship than almost any other subspecialty of medicine because there is this element of um the the there is a very strong relationship where where we as the physicians are actually working closely with our industry partners to develop new products to to look at new techniques and to evaluate products that are out there uh and in a lot of in a lot of areas of plastic surgery, um, we do lean on industry to provide more data than perhaps other areas of medicine. So it's, it's a unique subspecialty of medicine where our relationship with industry is, um, is I think t- like tighter than other areas of medicine. Would you agree? I mean, you've been in, you've been in gynecology and women's health. Did you get that sense? Completely agree because of the the um, the weight of the private sector with us as well. So you know, with the hospital setting, for sure, we get things get tendered out, decisions get made with the whole RFP process, which you're familiar with. In the private sector, we are way more engaged with the surgeons because it is your decision for your clinic what product you want to use. So there are things that you're going to consider that you know you and I need to have conversations of what's important to you, right? customer service, the, the, the customer experience piece, the, the product, the price. So all of that is you making your decisions for your clinic and your patients that I can work with you on that, right? Sometimes the hospital is maybe a bigger animal that 
it's harder. It's, you know, once that tender goes out, once they pick that, that customer, away they go. Where with you and I, we can say, you know, hey, this year, I'm not going to do as many breast implants. I'm going to do more body. So, you know, what do you have in your body portfolio that you can quote me on? So it's definitely a bit more personal. And I think it's, um, it's a bit more yeah, de- individualized for sure. It really is. And and I think, I guess where I was leading with this is that um, I, I was surprised starting these podcasts and talking to executives. Uh, I was pleasantly surprised, but I, I have to say, I didn't really see it coming that so many executives of companies that I really respect and, and by, you know, to be honest, I'm only interviewing companies that I respect <laughs> so many executives. When we, when we talk about culture, they really talk about these values and virtues that they kind of hammer home in their corporate culture. And it was really great to hear. And as an end kind of user and as kind of an outsider looking at these companies that I inherently like and I respect and I kind of have good relationships with the reps, uh, it, it's nice to hear. And it almost makes sense that they do have these values. And they're almost like, you know, I kind of jokingly, I uh, to my own residents, I call them the Sunday school virtues. They're the, kind of the virtues and values that you'd kind of teach your kids. <laughs> you know, uh, you don't necessarily it, like being a truthful, honest, you know, looking out for others, having kind of compassion and, uh, you know, these these va- va- these virtues that are really important and being a decent human being that you, you don't necessarily, I guess I would never have thought that those would be qualities that would be kind of hammered home in, an, in a corporate setting but they seem to be in a lot of the good companies oh it's 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 huge i mean it's it's so much so that sometimes because we're so strong with 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 all of these qualities that we want to embrace um you know we might swing too far one way because we spend so much time you know on the our community involvement our you know the kindness factors some of our diversity and inclusion initiatives that we do we just want to have the best people educated and and working in the company to really create that corporate culture um and and they've done a great job because we talked about the credo and and how we we you know we test it to make sure it's it's doing what it should be doing but there are other things that we look at just to make sure that corporate culture is created in terms of um you know workplace satisfaction and uh you know constantly looking at feedback from all different divisions and you know we're under the medical device umbrella but it also applies to our consumer partners and our pharmaceutical partners um, that we're really trying to to create this environment where where people love to come to work. Yeah, I mean, and it, and it shows. I mean, to be honest, it shows. Like you, from from my perspective, you certainly can see that in your dealing, like my dealings with companies and their employees, as to who really truly has um, like vested interests and kind of a bond with their company. But can I? Can we? kind of expand on that too because you are our you know our industry is one could argue this like our end users or or our our clients are by and large women mostly um yet on the corporate side of a lot of the companies that create products that we use um it's not predominantly women it's predominantly men so uh, i love to see um, female executives who've really uh, excelled in the aesthetics industry and what your experience has been as a female executive kind of working your way up this ladder. Okay, sure. And, you know, it's funny because I, I 
was hoping we would talk a little bit about that today. And so I, I, I asked my colleagues um, for a few stats, just how are we doing on that whole woman in leadership perspective? And you'll be interested to know that women right now at J&J lead 80% of our science-based functional teams. So, so that's, you know, that's a shift, right? Um, secondly, women hold nearly 45% of all science roles within Mentor. And lastly, more than 50% of the Mentor leadership team are women. So, so we really, if you looked at that, I'm sure 10 years ago, I mean, I, I'm sure we've doubled on every category. Uh, so it, it's always good to check just to see sort of what's happening from a global perspective and from head office. Well, yeah, you're right. Cause one, I would never have guessed that if you, if you asked me those questions and asked me to guess what the numbers were, particularly on the research side, uh, I would have guessed maybe flip those numbers around. I would yeah. have guessed it'd be on the 20, closer to the 20 rather than the 80. Dr. Yes, Danny, me too. And it's funny because when I got these numbers today, I sent them to my whole team because I think it's a great, uh, just for them to know, right? I, I mean, I know, you know, the question always gets asked. Jane Jay sometimes often gets thought of, you know, how are we represented from a female perspective in the leadership role? So that was uh, that was interesting. And majority of the, the reps replied back saying, wow, I did not know that. So it's information we need to share more, I think. Yeah, I mean, you really do. I mean, if 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 people don't know it, you really do need to share that because yeah. that's a that's a great statistic, especially in an industry that really is predominantly um, the, the the customers are are women and um, so 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 let's let's build on that point. So from your perspective. Um, what do you think that you've had challenge? Like, have you had challenges that perhaps some of your male colleagues wouldn't have had? Or are you in, are you saying that mentors so great that you've really like it's been an easy transition? I would say so. I went back five years ago to do my MBA, right? So that that was number one, just to give me a bit. And of your background, head. Kim, is nursing, right? So social science degree. Went on into nursing, but never nursed. So I know that always seems funny, but I, I went right away after my uh, my um, nursing stint to occupational health and safety, but went into the sales and marketing side. So so have background for sure and understanding things, but but no real um, active bedside nursing skills. So if you get sick, you do not want me at your side. Put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> Nor does my husband. You're so. not going to get redeployed during COVID. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's it. That's it. That's exactly it. Um, but but what's interesting, so when I went back to do my MBA and it was more just, you know, I had been in sales management position for a number of years, but just wanted that edge, right? Wanted that new shift to digital, to, you know, social networking, all those things that, you know, as a woman now in her, who's 50, um, it just things that I needed to brush up on. Um, it was great. I have to say for me in a leadership role, it really did help me move into mentor with the right skills that I needed to, to work with all of the different private clinics to help be more involved in tender processes and financial summaries and all of that. So, so from that end, and JJ was extremely supportive of that. So I think if I hadn't have done that, there might've been a bit, bit of a gap and a few more challenges for me. Um, especially as I say, because a lot of times we are doing business case scenarios with the private sectors where we're helping create value propositions and everything else working with, with our clients and our customers. Prior to that, women in a leadership position, you know, when I first got into 
to a sales management role, I would have been one of the very few females sitting around the table. Majority were male. And myself and my other female colleague, we would always get into a meeting initially and count, just, just to count, you know, what, what's the ratio in our head, right? And these little texts would come across. That's really shifted now. So, so that, you know, at one point, if it was, you know, two females and 20 males, uh, you're really seeing now it's, it's definitely more evenly distributed. And I also think it's just, you know, for, for several reasons. I mean, you know, it's a choice that a male or female have to make to take on. A, a bigger career, right? The time, I mean, you're away from family. If you're traveling, I mean, there are a lot of opportunities that are amazing, but some people don't look at it like that. Um, and, and often, and it's changed it drastically, but 15 years ago or, or 20 years ago, it wasn't always the female that would want to take on that 60 to 80 hour work week, um, which which is, it is, right? You, we, we work hard, right? We, we travel and you have to embrace that and have to have, a support system. So for me personally, I had a, a, a great support system. So I have a partner who is, you know, 50-50. There's no, um, there's no thinking, hey, that's your job or my job. And I also had two parents who live locally who, who, were, who were there when I was traveling to have the kids stay overnight and everything else. So those factors, I think, are what really helped make, make my role um, possible. So have you, do you think that companies need to go out of their way to, to make the environment a little bit more friendly for female executives? Or do you think it's naturally just kind of moving in that direction as someone who's succeeded? Yeah, I think both. I think now what's happened with COVID, it's made it really possible for, for virtual uh, communication um, meetings. So I don't think that expectation is that we all have to, all have to be in the office 8 a.m. till 6 p.m. every day driving to Marco. Um, so, and I think the company's now saying, hey, we get it. We don't, we don't think so either. If you had asked me five years ago, I would have said, yeah, I want everybody in the office. I want to have meetings around the boardroom. It was always my, I just liked everybody being in person, being there, being engaged. I, I tell you the last year and a half, you can definitely have great meetings like this, like we're doing. Um, It'd be much better to be in person doing it, but this definitely will suffice. Do you, do you think this will continue on? Do you, do you, will you guys go back to having more in person or do you think you'll continue on with having more virtual interactions? I think I'm going to really pick carefully what I can do virtually and what I think we still need to do in person. You do miss the human touch in person. I, I love, there's nothing I love more than having meetings and getting caught up and, you know, meeting for coffees or meeting for dinner. I think, I think you really develop strong relationships like that. People get to know each other a bit more personally. When we're doing these meetings and Zoom calls, we, we, you know, we put our 30 or 60 minutes in, we get right to the business. So you do miss that, that interaction a little bit. I don't want to say you miss the fun, but you know, there's something about team building and bonding that when we're together and if I have, a, we have a conference and we have all the reps across Canada come to a conference, we really help build a, a team, a better team that love working with each other. Zoom, yeah, it, it works, but it doesn't work all the time. It, would you agree like with the residents and things like that? Are you finding maybe a little bit the same in your area? Yeah, I mean, when it started, like when we a year ago, when we moved everything to virtual, and uh, I think it opened people's eyes that that you could do a lot of these things, and and I think it, it really expanded on a um, 
ex- like it, it expanded on people's interest in having educational activities actually because now you could do more like you could actually go to more conferences because they were virtual you didn't have to take you know a week off of work and travel and be away from your family and be in a hotel or if you were going to go do an evening event you could literally do that evening event from your office and your you know beside your bedroom and spend an hour and then be back at doing whatever it is at home as opposed to you're done for the night and you're gone and you're not going to see your kids and you come back so i think that part of it was certainly like has certainly been great and part of me thinks that that won't change i i've uh, i think it's fantastic that we have moved towards virtual meetings in like education for instance because now i can now i can participate in a european conference without having to go to europe and and i don't have to necessarily worry about taking so many days off work or being away from home i i can go to you know i can participate in conferences that are easier to get to and i think many people will feel that way i do agree with you that there's an element of being zoomed out though and i think there is it is not going to be ever as good as being in person and talking to people in person and 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 part of that is forming relationships where you know whereas now we're kind of chatting on um on zoom but if we were beside each other we do the same chat but then when the camera's off we're kind of really getting to know each other even more so so there there is you know that part of it i think we still do miss yeah dr tanner you're right and it's funny because today i had a CSPS call. So for those who don't know, it's the Canadian Society of Plastic Surgery that they're doing virtual meeting now. So we were all supposed to be in Whistler in June. And, and in those, that's always a great way to see a number of, of different healthcare practitioners from across the country. And so this year they've decided just do it everything else. It's going to be a virtual meeting. And again, I don't know from our end, from a company perspective, how how great that will be, right? You, that you'll come in, you'll enter into my booth virtually. Um, I'll, be, I'll have to let you know part two of our series, we can talk about it because I'm just not sure after seeing the call today is, does this work or I don't know. Well, that that's a good point. So for people who don't know, a lot of our educational conferences are supported financially by industry partners. But in, in the past, you'd go to a conference and there'd be an area where there'd be booths and um, participants would be encouraged to interact with the industry so that um, you can kind of see what those industry partners have brought to the conference, what they what new products they're showing. And it encourages kind of them to be involved. Now you're right. You're probably going to go into some breakout room and and. I, I like I'm not sure how you have a conversation with somebody in a breakout either. room if, if I, you don't I'm, know them and I'm they're just, just super curious. I was thinking he was showing me today and I'm like, really, how many people are going to want to have a live chat with me? But hey, I may be wrong. Right. So I'll be curious to see. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, it'll be interesting to kind of. Yeah, I don't know. But, you know, on on the flip side, there may be other things like um, I think the the whole webinar market has exploded like it is i don't know that there's a day that goes by that i'm not invited to multiple webinars <laughs> and and you know and that's great like they uh, the webinar kind of industry is is booming um i've given webinars and and it's kind of weird it's definitely weird giving a webinar um as opposed to giving an in-person lecture an in-person talk where um you kind of it's almost like you're talking into a vacuum or into a black hole there's very little 
you know, sensory feedback you get when you're giving a webinar and, you know, you kind of are just talking and maybe you know, depending on how many people are in the webinar, maybe somebody writes a question in the kind of chat comment and you can see their question. But by and large, there's no, you're not looking at faces, you're not hearing people, you're not, you know, there's not this physical feedback of, are you doing a good job? Is somebody interested? Should you go in a different direction? You're really, it's like you're sitting in a closet with the lights off and you're just talking to yourself. It's a very weird, weird feeling. One hundred percent. On top of the, can you hear me? Am I sharing my slides with you? Like if I hear these lines, anyway. yeah, because you get no feedback. That's what I mean. There's uh, no. It's like a sensory deprivation yeah. thing. You have no yeah. feedback, and you don't. You don't even know if your internet got disconnected at some. You're like at some point, I may have been disconnected and. I could just be talking to myself here and I, I don't know. <laughs> well, and forget about trying to be funny because you don't get any response. Like, so you think you've said something funny, but you're like, wait, maybe, you know, so, and, and I always think I'm funnier than I am as many people tell me. So that's even worse because now, you know, you just sit there like quietly thinking, oh gosh, nobody understood that. Yeah, that's right. It's the, the mental tumbleweed that's just kind oh, of rolling yeah, across yeah. the floor after you say something. Yes. Yeah. So I, I agree. I don't know. That that's a very weird thing. Um, but you know, on the other hand, like it opens up the whole webinar thing to people that wouldn't have ever been a part oh, of it before. Listen, it'll be interesting to see the attendance that they get. Uh, and then, you know, what I've also found is you can get some really good keynote speakers now that aren't having to fly in. So to your point, some some sessions that you might not have attended before because you just couldn't get there. Now they're bringing them to to you. It's it's fantastic. Yeah, I, there it's definitely pros and cons. I I don't think it'll go away, but I, I, I there'll have to be some kind of merging of yeah. in person yeah. and virtual. But I I don't get a sense it's going to go away anytime soon anyway. <laughs> I I would think that you know you know but we look at sort of we always we have this return to work committee of when everybody's going to go back to the office and you know at one point last year it was okay we're going to be back in July and then we're going to be back in October once they've stopped saying it because you know you know most likely like you said it's it's no different than you know what everybody when they'll be on a plane next time yeah I know so it's that so since we're naturally essentially talking about COVID do you know much about this J&J vaccine that's being released I so wish I did. I wish I knew more. Um, I don't, I don't know. I don't know much, but I was thinking, I thought you would ask me that for sure. And at some point, if, if one of your next series and if your audience is interested, I could see if I could get, you know, one of the medical directors who's involved with that to come on to a podcast, which might be interesting, right? Um, Just to see, you know, all I know is what I'm probably reading the same as you're reading is it's exciting that it's, it's one, one shot. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of benefits to some of that. So I, I think, um, I think it will most likely do very well. I just don't know enough about it. Yeah. We just got to put the, you know, the gas pedal down and kind of get it out fast. That's, that's the biggest thing. Get it. And the one shot vaccine is really great. It means more people are going to get access to it and be fully vaccinated without having to worry about the two shots. But it's true. We do, we do, um, we have a general manager who's excellent as well, but he'll do a town hall. And one of the first questions on every one of his town halls is when can we get our J and J vaccine? Right. So we always last because we just want them to open up the doors, let us go in, get the vaccine and 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 be gone. But but no such luck for us. Yeah. So, so tell me about the breast implant market. Can we talk a little bit about that? Mentor yes. is, uh, is primarily a breast implant company and it's unique because that's, that's really all you do. 
yeah, but we do focus on the the aesthetic and the and the recon, so the breast augmentation, reconstruction. But we also have a body body line with the micro system for liposuction that you're familiar with as well. Yeah, that's a that's a terrific power assisted liposuction machine. But but so implants. What is new with implants? And what is I kind of had this chat with one of my guests who was a clinician um, last year how really like you know implants are implants you know the the technology has changed but at the end of the day they've kind of they've kind of stayed the same in principle for decades so so when you look at r&d and what's next and where you guys are headed with implants what what do you decide what what is new what's going to be something that you focus on and what's new to the market i mean i think right now when we look at you know Number one is surgeon feedback. So we'll look at, you know, what, what do you, how do you think our current portfolio looks like? And are there gaps that you see? And, and if there are gaps, you know, for, for something, new products that we're going to be looking at, we want to make sure that we filled all those gaps for you on our current existing products. So whether that be certain sizes or, you know, the saline implant, if, if there are things. So voice of customer will always kind of help us figure out, you know, next direction. Um, you know, again, we always look for um, patient needs first. So however we can support the customers and the healthcare systems is always the next area that we're conscious of to make sure we're meeting the patient's needs first. Implant wise, I think, like you said, we've, um, we've come along, you know, salines at one point were a really big part of our portfolio. I think uh, many still use salines. Very interesting. A lot of surgeons and patients still love the saline implants. Um, I think gels have become more popular. Um, if you look at where, what's the direction, um, gels definitely has taken more of a first place with patient selection, uh, especially in Canada that may not be around the world. Well, what, what's the, what do you think the percentage is? I mean, I can just tell you from my own personal experience that it is really rare for a, for a woman to ask for saline implants. Um, and, uh, you know, I used to, I used to tell people it was kind of nine out of every 10 patients wanted a gel implant. Now it's like, like 99 out of a hundred. What are you finding from the sales perspective? What are those numbers? Go back to maybe your nine out of 10 or your eight out of 10. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's just different reasons why certain patients might prefer a saline. And then I guess from your end, if if the patient said, no, I really want a saline, you'd be like, okay, no problem. We'll get you a a saline. Correct. You might want to, would you ask her what, you know, why tell me why the saline appeals to you right now? Yeah, absolutely. I, I asked them specifically and, and I find that the people who come in wanting saline are, they're not people that are coming in without a preconceived idea and then deciding yeah. on the spot with my help. The people who want saline have already decided when they've come to see me that they they want a saline for this, that, you know, for any number of reasons. And most often it's just really kind of their, their perception of safety profile of the devices. Um, yeah. And, and there's really like, not that I try to change their mind. I really don't. That's not the way that I approach my consultations, but I'm just saying I couldn't change their mind even if I tried to. I mean, those are kind of, but, but everybody else has geared towards gels and really like if, if you took, I don't know, if you took 10 patients and you put them in a room and asked them like, here's the pros and cons in my experience, I'm not seeing any of those types of patients 
on their own when they come in without a without a bias choosing saline they're all choosing gel it, what's interesting because even when I've asked that question with some of your colleagues too, they'll indicate if someone had a friend who had a saline and the results were good and they look good, that will also be an indicator why they may come in and want a saline themselves. That word of mouth, right? But I don't know if that's, I mean, that's not my experience because nowadays, especially with social media, like, yes, maybe somebody has a friend who had one experience, but then they're on social media and they're looking at like hundreds of people who have their own experience, but also very strong opinions. And, and they're like, they're very influenced by what they find on social media more yeah, than, more, really more than that. But yeah, I, I just, I don't know. So, so when you Again, back to this question of what's what's next. I mean, what are you guys looking at as being kind of the next development in implants? So from from an implant perspective, you know, I think right now, you know, it's hard to talk about some of the pipeline because it's Oh, tough, come tough. on, Kim, you can talk about it. Yeah. It'll just be between us, right? Yeah, it's just between <laughs> friends, just me and you. No one else is listening. But I know I know if you look at sort of, you know, where does you know, mentors are always looking for, you know, how do we, how do we add to our current portfolio to, to actually complement the aesthetic business? And, you know, for me in Canada, um, having the microware that we can distribute as part of our portfolio, that's, that's what I'm looking at to say, are there other things that I could be adding to our portfolio that we could be offering you in the private setting that will complement your breast augmentation procedures? So if I can start looking at some of those, because being a distributor for certain product lines, I think why not? If we know obviously they've made all the standards, they're Health Canada approved. Um, we again, we've got surgeon feedback. You know, I always look to yourself or your colleagues to say, you know, hey, am I missing? Is there something that you've seen at a conference that you think is wonderful? Um, you know, you and I spoke a little bit about the biosimulation stuff like that. You know, are those areas that maybe we should be exploring further? And and I would say for sure all of that is being explored you know and and feedback that i think works here in canada you know like my partnership with my career i'll share with my u.s partners to say you know um hey this is a good product we're having great success so i think that's what we'll, we'll look at always wanting to grow always wanting to serve more patients um globally for sure uh, if we can, will be will be our goals and objectives. Will you ever get into areas that are non-breast related, um, like face products, facial you know facial aesthetics, or? I mean, from from a personal perspective, I really hope so. Right, I I think we've got such a great sales division, sales team that um, if we can add more and bring more to the to the private sector to the plastic surgeon. I'm really hoping so. And I, I think with J&J, &J, the one great thing about, about J&J always, they're always looking for, for, as I said, better ways to serve the, the healthcare practitioners and the patients. So, you know, you look at some of the, the acquisitions J&J &J have made across the board in years, um, they always want to grow. And so I would think mentor would be no different. Right. Right. Um, and you, what, what are your goals? Um, where are you headed, Kim? Where am I headed? That's a great question. I feel like I'm talking to my manager who will say, so where, where do you see yourself in three to five years? Um, you know what? I, I'm really like, you know, if the reps listen to this, they're going to go, here she goes. But I, I'm really enjoying the uh, the mentor portfolio. Like, I uh, I love the fact that we've been able to build some really great relationships 
uh, with surgeons throughout the past several years. So I would hope that we, you know, globally we've become, we've got this uh, management board from a global perspective that we work closely with. I'm hoping that we can do more of that, that me personally can do more of that, working with some of the other countries, finding out what they're doing that's different or unique that I can bring to Canada. If you ask me in the next two or three years, that's what I'm hoping. If they've done certain programs that's worked extremely well, I would look at sort of saying, okay, well, why don't I see if that would fit in the Canadian marketplace tied into the plastic surgery world? Uh, and what about you, you? You have a a website that patients can access. Um, that's that's a great website for breast surgery education, but it's only available in the states. Is that correct? No, so that's a good question. Thanks. We we have now Canadianized it. Um, so we have a, and, and I'll send you the link and everything, but we've got it now where it's Canadian information um, that um, we are, uh, patients are allowed to go, are allowed. They are able to go on, take a look at it, surgeons as well. And uh, effective in the next week or two, we're starting our Instagram campaign, which will also be new to the Canadian digital space for us. Uh, but we're really excited about it. Just we think we're just trying to reach more people and, and social media is, is definitely the platform to do that. Right. But the, but the website, I think um, your previous leadership had told me that the website um, had an ability to do virtual sizing and um, patients could could do some kind of virtual uh, pictures onto that, that website itself. Uh, we just didn't never had access to that in Canada. Am I correct? Or was that is that? I think I think you are correct. I think the U.S. were looking at doing one that had a bit more that you could actually go right in, and all ideally that will be our goal in Canada to get to that same point. Our first part was just let's launch it, let's get all the relevant information from a Canadian perspective, um, and then I think part two of that with our marketing manager Elizabeth Cole, she'll look at taking that and saying, okay, what's working extremely well on the U.S. website that we can actually take from them and, and add to ours. Yeah, it's a it's a weird thing when there's U.S. websites and Canadian websites where like the you can't cross over because of the territory you're in. I never quite understood why that's why that's the case, particularly because the the internet's really a global open village, and to kind of have these kind of geographical boundaries on in the digital world really seems odd to me, doesn't it to you? It, they've gotten so much better now of just, you know, sharing and, and we're all involved in those initial meetings. So the great news is it used to be like that. It's really shifted now that if we're developing something, we're all at the table and we're all looking at, OK, this is the only difference would be the Canadian healthcare system might be a little bit different. So, OK, we'll explain that. What does that look like? So at the end of the day, the content will all be consistently the same. There just might be those few country tweaks. Of, you know what we can do that's a little bit different than what the U.S. could do or China could do, um, etc. Right. Okay, Kim. I, I ask everybody this question: um, What is the one issue in the world that is most important to you? I'm not talking about medical. I just mean kind of global issue that really kind of strikes deep in your heart. I, I think COVID has shaken me up a little bit. You know, I think this whole, if you had asked a year and a half ago that we'd all be shut down in a pandemic, I never would have believed it. And uh, and I think just now people getting immunized um, as quickly as possible is, is something I'm more passionate about. Follow the rules right now. Uh, you, know, you know, wear a mask. 
um, you know, respect some of the, the policies that have been set. Uh, so I think that right now would be, if you ask me, what am I passionate about? I'm passionate about that just to make sure people are safe. Um, you know, parents, my parents, my grandparents, um, and, uh, and it's just been really, uh, in Ontario specifically right now, it's been, uh, we've been hit. And, uh, and so I just want to get this cleared up as quickly as possible so that we can resume, you know, back to if we want to travel or we want to uh, have, you know, Christmases together or special events together. Yeah, well said. Um, well, Kim, thanks so much. Um, you're terrific. Um, I think Mentor Canada is really lucky to have you kind of leading the charge. And uh, I really look forward to seeing where you head in the future. Well, talk to you as Danny. I, I think for sure you are terrific. And I think you've got your second gig now when you decide you're going to get out of plastic surgery. I can't think of a better person. You're just a truly, you're a natural. So you make, you make it easy for me. So really, I think, uh, I think you've got a great thing going here. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. Okay, take care, Kim. Thanks so much. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.